Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my banter buddy in crime, <laughs> Gabe Dalrick. How are you, Gabe? Hello. <laughs> I'm good. Good, good. Nailed that opening. <laughs> Every year, Hollywood releases two third movies based on the same idea. Which movie did it better? How did this happen? And what would make a better third movie? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies about meticulous assassins coming out of retirement. The Equalizer versus John Wick. All right, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies. On the 26th of September 2014, The Equalizer was released. Here's the IMDb synopsis. A man believes he's put his mysterious past behind him and has dedicated himself to beginning a new, quiet life. But when a young girl under the control of an ultra-violent Russian gangster appears, he can't stand by idly, he has to help her. Now, shortly afterwards, two months later, in fact, on the 24th of October 2014, John Wick was released. And here's the IMDb synopsis. An ex-hitman comes out of retirement to track down the gangsters that killed his dog and took everything from him. Gabe, let's start with what these films mean to us. When did you see The Equalizer? And what was that experience like? I think I saw it at the movies in 2014, and I don't really recall it making some big impression on me at the time. Although when I rewatched it the other day, I liked it a lot. So yeah, I mean, I guess there's no big, wide, fat, crazy story about seeing this one. It sort of felt like a Denzel pot boiler, something by the numbers, a little bit, I guess. Yeah, John Wick is different though. So what about you? Yeah, I saw The Equalizer at the cinema. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. I'm a sucker for Denzel, and we'll get into the difference between- (laughs) Exactly. So, my experience was pretty subdued. I mean, this film came out only recently, five years ago in 2014. So, pretty much in the absolute middle of the whole Marvel and then DC superhero 10-year window. So, it was really competing against a lot of those spectacle movies. And this would be termed, I guess, in the terms of the current era, an adult movie, as in like not one, which is just lots of blue lasers into the sky, explosions, aliens and superheroes. So, Even though he is in effect a superhero. Totally, 100%. I mean, that's it. He does have superhero-like characteristics, not so much as John Wick, which we'll get to. So I saw it in a pretty subdued context at the cinema and there would have been probably five people in the cinema like this film wasn't some sort of 100 million dollar success story on day one at the box office it was a subdued film surrounded by superhero movies which i suppose brings me to john wick did you catch that originally at the cinema or later on dvd i don't think anyone did in australia did it get a cinema release here in australia maybe it got released here in australia months and months after it's american Release because I definitely didn't see John Wick at the cinema. I saw it on Blu ray. Interesting. Okay. Well, it got released in the US around, I think it said October 2014. In Australia, it got released only a week later on the oh. 30th of October. Maybe it was the sequel then that that was the thing. At any rate, I don't recall there being much buzz about it at the cinema at all. And sort of, it definitely felt like one of those movies that everyone slept on when it first came out, right? Yeah, totally. That film's one of those films that has increased in popularity on streaming and DVD and Blu-ray since its release, and then each film has been more successful than the other as a cult classic. Yeah, which is atypical, right? Totally. I mean, there is- And great, and really cool. That doesn't happen these days. Basically, usually when a sequel comes out, it makes less than the first film. So, for this film to become more and more critically popular, more popular with general sort of fanboys with its cine score and Rotten Tomatoes score, and more popular at the box office is pretty amazing. 
All right, so then let's just do a quick history lesson before we jump into how we got here. Interestingly, John Wick film was actually directed by Keanu's two stuntmen and stand-ins from The Matrix. So, yeah, so he basically had a 15-year relationship prior to doing John Wick from 1998 when he made The Matrix, and both were stunt performers and also stunt directors. And so when they both came to this film, they basically had a pre-existing relationship with Keanu and also. I guess it was their opportunity to do a take on modern action that was, I guess, some elements of Kung Fu and some elements of what's that particular thing that was made famous by that film with Christian Bale? Gun Carter. Uh-huh. How do you define Gun Carter? It's basically karate with a gun. Is that right? <laughs> like karate where you shoot people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But you actually can see the origins in some respects. If you watch The Matrix, and then I think it's Equilibrium, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, the Christian Bale movie. Yeah, if you watch those Did two they do films, that film? I don't know. Let's get into a trivia later on and we'll try and check, check okay. it out. But it wouldn't surprise me because you do see in the fight sequences in John Wick some of that. Anyway, that's the history of that. Basically, a long-term relationship and then they make this film. But And as for Equalizer, we know the story behind that. That's basically a remake of an existing sh- movie. Been around for a long time in the works and eventually after being in limbo for a number of years, like many of these remakes of classic TV shows, like Amy Vice, for example, it finally happened. But we'll get to trivia as to any interesting stories about the production. So let's jump into the review of Equalizer. So, Gabe, did you like it? What worked and what didn't? I reckon it's one of those movies where when I first saw it, I wasn't that into it. But now I find it incredibly rewatchable. Like you can just bang it on and have a good time with Denzel as he just lays waste to room after room full of Russian gangsters. I think this is one of those sort of Saturday afternoon watch it at home movies that's just kind of tremendous. And also Denzel is just a charisma machine. Charisma machine, you could bottle that. Yeah, what about you? You're absolutely right. I agree 100%. I think this film actually has got better with time. I think it's incredibly rewatchable, as you say. I put it on initially on the TV and switched to the iPad and came back to the TV. And I mean, there are so many fantastic elements. First of all, it's very slow burn. There's about 25, 35 minutes at the start, which is basically all character moments before there's any sense of threat, which rarely happens these days. Like normally you have a coal opening action scene or some sort of flash forward or flashback to try and get you curious and keep you on the hook before things get sort of to set things up, basically. This film starts incredibly slowly, but 100% benefits from it. And maybe I'm just jaded from too many superhero films or Fast and Furious films where they're increasingly unbelievable. Like, okay, science fiction or let's say superhero films, they're obviously, there's a sense of fiction to it. And then you've got those Fast and Furious films that become more and more ludicrous with each film and uh, yeah, series. Yeah, totally. Like- but this just feels so grounded and refreshingly grounded. Like, it, it, in some ways, it feels much closer to something like Zero Dark Thirty or um, the uh, Bourne quadrilogy than any other film. It just feels, it's obviously heightened in terms of its violence and so on, but it just feels quiet. It feels dangerous. It feels adult as a story. I love the character of Robert McCall, I think, played by Denzel Washington. I was look, watching it, and we'll get to dialogue later on, but there was just line after line. I just thought, that's a great movie line. Ah, there's heaps um, of good lines in this. Yeah, that's not actually yeah. one of those things that really surprised me watching it back. It's like He's got this kind of like philosophical, I guess because he spends all of his time reading books in a diner. Yeah, totally. You know, he's got this nice philosophical bent to him. Yeah, 100%. 
I mean, I love uh, the way they set things up slowly. Like, I love the meticulous man of process where he has a stopwatch, he cleans his kitchen meticulously, he folds a tea bag up slowly in a paper napkin to take mm. down to the diner. He lays his book on the table and aligns it exactly with the edge, like kind of OCD type traits, which if you saw on someone who wasn't an assassin, you might put down to as someone being kind of weird. But on an assassin, it all feeds into his precise calculating personality. I love little details, which you've seen other movies, but they kind of recreate here. There's that Silence of the Lambs door opening type moment. You know that classic trick where they show one character in one space and another character coming to get them in the other space. And yeah, and the door opens and we you sort of use the edit to, yeah. to flip which door it actually is. And, yeah, totally. And this one was slightly different where it was basically a difference in time. No, no, actually it was different. He was preparing himself in a bathroom that transpires he's preparing himself in a different bathroom in a similar apartment. So they open the door to his old bathroom, not his hideout, and it's empty, of course. I love movies where protagonists tell parables and <laughs> his day because he was kind of quite literary, he had book smarts, it worked with the character. Like you kind of buy into those monologues and that um that storytelling when you've got a character who is pretty much reading throughout the film. I love any Home Alone type movie where huh. there's like MacGyver style using of tools. That was awesome. That happens like throughout the film, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, what's really interesting is that the character doesn't carry a gun. I can't definitively recall off the top of my head if he even uses a gun in the first Equalizer movie. But I think it's yeah. really cool the way that he just sort of utilizes, I mean, particularly the Home Depot, whatever the Home Depot is called in the film. And it's sort of like this almost like a horror stalker slasher type sequence where he sort of just disassembles this sort of like Blackwater-esque military team with just like booby traps. It's like super cool and with no gun. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you're right. I can't recall him actually drawing a gun and pulling out a gun at any stage. He's utilising what he has around him. And in that opening scene, when he first challenges the the Russian mobsters, he basically utilises all those little details. So, you have that bit where the camera kind of takes his perspective as he calculates all the potential weapons in the room and then uses them like a glass bottle, then utilises the weapons of the other characters, the henchmen, the thugs around him. That classic thing where they- he grabs the gun or the knife from their hand, then uses it to stab someone else or to stab them. That worked yeah. really well. <laughs> like it's very, very movie that first time you see him set his stopwatch. And I love that bit when he goes to walk out the room and he closes the door and opens it and closes it and opens oh, it. Oh yeah, that's really cool. Isn't and it's basically so I think a physical manifestation of his indecisiveness as to whether he kind of puts this to bed now. And then he close the door. And it's just great because when you see someone close the door and lock it, not only is he not running away, he's basically locking them in with him. Yeah, that's right. He, he's locking them in with him. That's Although it's interesting because they kind of, they sort of drop that stylistic thing of the, he looks around the room and calculates the time because that doesn't really happen in like the, you would almost expect in the final sequence. Yeah, you're right. Film, you're right. You're 100% right. For that to come back that idea to come back, but it, it doesn't. It's not a great failure of the film or anything, but it's just interesting. It sort of sets up that's his thing, that's his power, that's his MO, and then they kind of leave it behind. Yeah, it's very Terminator 2, isn't it? Like in T2, we sort of see the perspective with the screen graphics across the eyes of the Terminator, and we're getting the insight into how he calculates his next move. It's really similar to that, not as stylized, obviously. He's not a robot, but it has that same sort of visual trick, but it is Weird, you're right, that you set that up 
and then you don't pay it off throughout the film. I mean, they do set up the stopwatch business way before the fighting starts, the very, very start when he's just sort of like timing himself, doing like things around an the egg house. Or something. Yeah. So that part's set up, but it is funny they, that they drop that. And ordinarily, probably stand out more. But I think, as you say, the ending with that kind of Home Alone slash slasher vibe in that kind of Home Depot thing where he's utilizing various kind of tools like nail guns and this one he actually stabs someone through the neck with, I think. It's yeah. Like a, uh, harpoon it, gun or something? Is it a harpoon gun or is it a hedge cutter or something? It's nasty. Anyway. He's dead. <laughs> And there would have been so many opportunities to actually carry through that kind of aesthetic style of POV, which they don't. And I do think, though, in not having it, it probably grounds that third act much more. Yeah. I'm not quite sure even how they would incorporate that same sort of thing in because it's interesting in that third act as well. He almost, in a way, disappears off the screen and you kind of follow the mercenaries as they walk through the Home Depot and are picked off. Whereas you probably need to be with him much more to continue that kind of device of the slow-mo and the stopwatch and so on. Yeah, although there are moments when it does cut back to his POV as well only, like the part where he sets up the nail gun and he sort of like lights the flame on the ground as a distraction Mm. to draw people towards him. And then as one person rounds the corner, he just zaps him in the back of the head with the nail gun. Like that way you're seeing his setup from the start. You're right. Then Akon will switch it and we'll just be following one of those henchmen and suddenly, bang, he gets them. But actually the other detail I really love about the Equalizer is they don't always show when he commits those acts of violence. Like remember that scene where the robber comes into the Walmart and steals the Hispanic check out chick's wedding ring. Oh, yep. And he notes their number plate and then it cuts to him returning to the store the next day. He takes a actually a large big kind of metal, what do you call those huge metal hammer things that you swing, like, you know, a Thor-style hammer, you know, those, <laughs> right. you know, those construction things. Sure. And he takes it and then it cuts to the next day where he comes back kind of wiping it clean, implicitly wiping oh, blood yeah, off it. Oh, yeah, that's right. And he puts it back on the shelf, right? Yeah. So, you just imagine what's happened overnight off screen. Yes, he murdered somebody. Yeah, but I actually like love that detail. Like, we don't need to see everything. Yeah, they do that at the end as well when he walks out of the Russian mobster's house and he walks through the sort of foyer of this big mansion and there's all the bodies and blood on the wall. Oh, that's right. He just decimated all of them as well. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It shows a confidence that we don't need to see everything and in some respects just hinting to his power off screen kind of can hint to how powerful he'll be in, in future scenes. Yeah, that's right. How many people he'll kill. Yeah, it's a yeah. High number. Perhaps not as high as John Wick, though. <laughs> okay, let's get to John Wick. So, thoughts on John Wick, first of all, before we start comparing them? Oh, I mean, this movie, it pretty much rules, doesn't it? Who doesn't like this movie? Me. It's just, really? Oh, wow. we'll get there. Dang. We'll get okay, there. this might be good then, eh? Ooh, watch out. <laughs> oh, ding. shots fired. I love this movie. I think it's just like super watchable, kind of dopey, I guess. You know, he goes and kills Kinda? about a billion people. For a dog. But then, like, as if that's not the greatest motive. Like, people are sick and tired of just revenge over, like, your dead buddy, your dead wife, your dead kid. That's old. That's been done. Who cares? Dead dogs, though. Mate, you better watch out. Because everybody loves dogs. Yeah. Especially puppies. Cute puppies. I've got to say, the revenge over the dead dog, to me, actually feels like one of those parodies you'd have in one of those Adam Sandler movies. Like, you know, the movies they show, no. like. Yeah. No. Seriously. Look, I enjoy John Wick. Nowhere near as much as Equalizer. But I think John Wick is a film that should not work and it works in spite of it. Because if you walked in the room and said, 
we're going to name a film John Wick. It's like, okay, like that's not really a recognisable name of any sort. I guess when you put a character's name in the title, it's sort of meant to evoke them as a legend. But like Malcolm X. Or John Carter. <laughs> of Mars? Well, I dropped the Mars bit, right? They were so confident. Yeah. yeah. Just of Portland. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that's a very confident thing to do. But even the name John Wick, I don't think is particularly interesting. I mean, just the name John's a pretty generic name. So first of all, it shouldn't work for that reason alone. Then the motivation of having the cute dog, which just feels like totally riding the coattails of adorable memes of freaking cats or dogs from Facebook or something like that. That just feels like a really cheap and easy way to try and get the audience to root for him. So there's that. I don't think it's cheap and easy. I think it's just like that thing where it's like the motivators for these revenge films are always kind of cursory. They're always kind of like, oh, you have one scene that sets up the wife or whatever, and then you kill her off a scene later, and it's just enough so that the audience goes, oh, yeah, we can now justify whatever this main character needs to do, like however much trail of carnage they need to leave in their wake. So I kind of think switching it to the dog is kind of an inspired choice because, you know, if you've ever spent any time on Reddit or any sort of social media, when anyone mistreats an animal, people come out like with vitriolic revenge, death death to the perpetrator, and rightly so. So I feel like kind of like it really works as a sort of fresh, not necessarily tongue-in-cheek, but fresh revenge motivator. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, in some respects, I think it's actually unnecessarily complicated and one step removed. Like, okay, so he loses his wife. That's not a good enough reason for him to get revenge or that's not part of this story. That's because John Wick can't kill cancer. He can shoot everything in the head, but he can't shoot cancer in the head. Oh, yeah, okay, all right. But then she then gives him the dog and then the dog gets killed. I mean, do you think you actually needed to have- her at all. But then so he just bought himself a dog and then they kill the dog. No, because the dog represents the last- I know that the dog's a stand-in for her. It's like that one remaining memory. It's like, you know, in John Wick 2, the very start sequence where he, spoilers, spoilers, where he tries to grab his car and you're not sure why he's so desperate to get get his car, despite totaling his car. And it turns out inside the glove box of the car is a final card, I think, or a letter from his dead wife. So it was the same kind of idea. Basically, the cold opening of John Wick 2 is like the entire first film John Wick compressed into about 10 minutes. But rather than trying to seek revenge for the dog, he's trying to get his car back to retain a memory of his wife. Same but different, right? So circling back to why a dog – look, I don't know. It just feels a little bit cheap. I mean, I agree with you. Like People like cute dogs and cats. So in that sense – it makes sense from a story point of view in terms of like fostering empathy for the character and getting people on board this killing assassin machine revenge trip. But I don't know. It just, for me, it doesn't seem like it's enough. But I think it was on the commentary for Snatch. Yeah, that's right. The commentary for Snatch. Guy wow. Ritchie says- How many yeah, people today talked about the commentary deep, for Snatch around the world? Deep cuts. This is a deep cut. He's talking about like you want to make a character villainous. You don't have him kill a human. You have him kick a dog. And you know what? That's the crazy thing though about society, right? Is that people will happily see 100 people get killed and have, ever have since Stallone and Arnie Schwarzenegger films. But dare you show an animal get hurt and they freak out. So from that point of view, I actually do think- It's smart in terms of how most audiences respond to the death of animals. I just don't like that most people respond to the death of animals like that. So, 
it's not really on the filmmakers as such. It just feels like they're kind of playing into a oversensitive audience who are desensitized in relation to humans. But by that kind of line of thinking, in just quickly jumping back to the equalizer as a point of reference, Denzel gets like a massive steel sledgehammer and presumably goes and murders some bloke because he stole that woman's ring. That guy could have stolen that ring for any number of like reasons, you know, like sort of socioeconomic reasons that drove that character who we know nothing about. He just turns up as a robber to steal that ring and he's just dead set murdered by it. You don't have a problem with that, right? You're absolutely right. And that's probably my the contradiction in my critique of John Wick versus the Equalizer. I don't have any issues at all with the violence that the Equalizer dishes out, Robert McCall, Denzel's character. But I do with John Wick. This, I think, comes back to the difference between the two films. I think that John Wick is a celebration and a glorification of violence in a heightened, super real world or hyper real world. I mean, to be fair, it's really the sequels that double down on this whole underworld. But it's incredibly unbelievable, right? I mean, everything from, you know, Kevlar-style suits and this whole idea that there's an underworld of hitmen that all have rules and- And hang out at one hotel. Hang out at one hotel, and they call in the same undertaker who wears I love that this guy. particular hat and has a certain look about him. <laughs> yeah. And, there's, you know, there's a certain code. This is all stuff that I really liked about the film, so it's really interesting that those things you yeah, didn't- and that thing is that- Didn't like. I think for me, when it comes to movies, I want to have my movies either relatively grounded or really lean into the fiction. I think because John Wick kind of walks this weird world, I find it more fake than, say, another counter film- Keanu Reeves film like The Matrix. Like The Matrix to me is more believable because even though it's science fiction, the science that sets up the fiction is believable in that world. Whereas in John Wick, it's like, well, which world are we in? Like it can't be this particular timeline of our lives here because this would not happen. You would not have a hotel with assassins. By the way, who assassins who follow rules? Like it's kind of ludicrous. But I mean, like, well, assassin movies are always full of like assassins who has to follow rules. That's like one of the silly conceits of the assassin movie genre. But the same, I guess, is true for the Equalizer. Don't you think if a room full of Russian mobsters were all murdered at once, or if an entire Home Depot of like highly trained soldiers were all murdered at once, that wouldn't be ongoing national continuous news? Whereas in the Equalizer, it's like, well, he did that. He killed all those people. Just another day in the office. Yeah, but I'm not talking about national news. I'm talking about the believability of the world that someone wouldn't find out, for example. Like, of course, they're going to find out there's the hotel that only assassins can stay at. And then when the assassins are at the hotel, they refer to each other by their first name. They have a drink with each other. In John Wick 2, you see that they will basically put their fighting aside temporarily and then go, once they leave the hotel, they'll try and assassinate each other again. To me, it's much more believable and grounded, both in terms of the realism of the world. I mean, obviously, the equalizer is more grounded. That, that's a given. But totally. I feel that John Wick isn't heightened enough. It's sort of like no man's land. For me, that's just for me. So, for example, I can buy the morality in the equalizer. I can buy every decision that Robert McCall makes. And when there is violence, even like the example you gave before, which seems totally disproportionate to the crime, which is- he implicitly kills or seriously injures a character off screen, the robber who took the checkout chick's wedding ring. I'm on board for that more than like 
just one scene alone of John Wick where he'll like brutally assassinate 20 different thugs, some of them actually dressed in like very stylish suits. So it's, you know, it's very much like James Bond or Raised by Dogs where criminals wear suits. I mean, that's just fake as it is, right? I mean, Denzel Washington doesn't want, not only does he not wear a suit, he wears like daggy chinos and shirts and works in Home Depot. Like you couldn't get more grounded than that. So I don't know, that, that's just for me why it doesn't work. I'll tell you what does work about it. So I'll let's look at the pros. I like any film that has rules, honor, and code. And this in some respects is all those things like a samurai film, right? Right. So I like that. So you like that he has retirement and they have gold coins and I don't quite understand. What do you mean? You like that he's kind of like a samurai? You like- I like the nod to samurai films. I don't think they're executed as well, but I like films that have rules, honours and codes in a sense. Like- right, right. So, like Alfie Allen's character stepped outside of the sort of prescribed set of rules and tried to steal John Wick's car and killed his dog. And because of that, the sort of he is therefore reaps the revenge because he didn't obey and operate within the rules. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, and that obviously is also, I think, a rod for its own back because whenever you have a film like a samurai film that has rules, honour, codes, you then do get that situation where you just ask the question, why don't they just kill each other? Like think about even a Western film, right? They had that whole thing where they walk 10 paces and spin around. If you really want to survive, you turn around after five and shoot the guy in the back. So, And I guess the sequel does that where John Wick now breaks the rules because he doesn't honour the blood agreement or whatever. Yeah, the so, marker. Weirdly, by that movie's own sort of rules, John Wick is the villain of the second one. Like, he should have just done what the guy wanted. He owed the guy, but John Wick broke the rules. Whereas in no, the first in, one, John Wick kills everyone because- No, in John Wick, he does follow the rule because he's actually asked to deliver on a marker and he says no, and then they try to kill him. But so he then should he deliver on the marker. And he does. He goes and kills a woman. Oh, yeah, that's right. And then there's that bit where the marker's presented and- the Italian brother who had a contract out on his sister with John Wick, who was calling the marker, puts his finger in it and uh, that's right. gets a blood yeah, right. sort of fingerprint and that kind of seals the deal for um, who's our mate from Sexy Beast? Ian McShane. Yeah. Right. So, uh, yes, okay. so John Wick does follow it, and but then he becomes a target. That's all. That's why it all goes pear-shaped because right. there's a $7 million bounty on his head. I, I mean, I suppose, though, the the John Wick plot and world and stuff just exists to hang the pretty phenomenally well executed action sequences off though. You gotta admit, the fight choreography and stuff is pretty exceptional in the film, right? Yeah. Look, I think the fight choreography in John Wick is outstanding. That's what you get when you've got these two stuntmen slash stunt directors who have spent twenty years on probably two, three films a year perfecting their craft. They're there at the highest level of their game in Hollywood. And then you've got two of them working together, which makes it a little bit easier, obviously, in terms of like just combining their expertise and bringing all of that to this movie. Like, you know, it just just feels like a culmination of expertise in stunts and shows. It's all on screen. But also having an actor who's willing to put in the time and effort to do as much of that as possible. Because, you know, those two guys, Chad Stahelski, sorry, Chad, and David Leach, Yep, that's Sorry, it. David. I yeah. pronounced both of the names terribly. Yeah, Chad um, Stelhelski you know, and David Leach. Yeah. yeah. They've obviously done heaps of movies as um, stunt coordinators, and those movies don't necessarily have action sequences nearly as good as this, Red 2 or After Earth or Expendables 2 or whatever. So oh, we're really, agreeing. I'm saying they're trying to top themselves, basically. Totally. But, the but, best I mean, version. You can only do that when you've got an actor kind of as game as Keanu, 
who's willing to put in the time and effort to train and prepare. Yeah, totally. Like this is basically Keanu doing the same thing as Matrix version two, which is basically spending months and months training in a version of Gun Carter or whatever it might be. I mean, you see him. Someone's going to be deeply unimpressed that you've referred to it as Gun Carter. Totally. I do think you're 100% right about the quality of the action, the stunts. I mean, in an era where people started using shaky cam like Bourne and a lot of disorientating cuts and stuff to try and create tension or disorientation through inconsistent editing and camera movement and shots, this film basically puts the camera back. You see Keanu doing everything on screen, in the frame, no stunt person. And when the camera does move, it kind of accentuates the stunt in a positive way. So I just think it's refreshing to see good old-fashioned stunts with clear geography in the fight scene. Yeah, totally. It's amazing. I guess John Wick and The Raid are the two films that spring to mind as sort of the best examples of that recently. And then that other, that other, what was that other one called? It was a Netflix movie. Another, um, oh God, I've forgotten. Dang it, I'll remember. But yeah, it's so cool when you see these movies and they're not all chopped up. They have more than one move within an edit. You know, people would criticize those Christopher Nolan Batman movies as the fight scenes being overly choppy. And, you know, as someone who cuts stuff, a lot of those movies that aren't John Wick, those fights, they're just sound effects. They're just people waving their hands around in the frame and sound effects. Yeah. Whereas this, you really see some craft. Totally. And also shooting them is really difficult. As soon as you've got to have someone do like seven moves and the operator's got to do something and squibs have got to go off and it's really, oh, man, I'm so yes, I guess coming back to that thing, I guess with a movie like this, I care much less about the plot in a way because the plot is kind of just, it may as well be any other B-movie plot. There's nothing particularly amazing or interesting. It's just a means to hang, yeah, these just phenomenally cool action sequences off. So I'm much more forgiving, I guess, than you about the world and the story and the plot. Interesting things about this film is it does wear its exaggerated heightened world on its sleeve. And one of the giveaways for that is that classic trope of assassins wearing suits. So in John Wick, John Wick wears a suit and so do all of his assassins chasing him and stuff. Like it's very movie, that idea, right? Yet in Equalizer, it's actually the villain in the suit. That's Martin Chokus. Martin Sokus? Sokus. Like, you know, New Zealand's own. That's right. But you'd never know because he only seems to play Eastern, Eastern European. Europeans. <laughs> that's right. That's so true. That's so true. <laughs> Actually, speaking of names and trying to pronounce his name, the other interesting thing is both films go in opposite directions. So each film chooses a different way as to how to recognize the protagonist. So what I mean by that is this. You know that classic thing where a film will actually name drop the title in the film? Right. I'm not sure if you recall watching The Equalizer, but there's no, at least no, two. What? <laughs> it's at goes, least- oh, there he is. He's the Equalizer. No, no. It's actually, oh, he- there's at least two, I think possibly three instances where the characters say, who are you? And they're playing on the audience's assumption that he'll respond with The Equalizer. And on all three occasions, they're cut off. In fact, he does. He deliberately doesn't say anything at all. But it's totally surely he's not going to say, "I'm the equalizer." There's another scene where there's a window where someone else could say, "Who is it? Who is this guy?" And they could say, "He's someone. He settles scores. He fights for the uh, the poor. He's a Robin Hood of uh, revenge and violence." Some call him the equalizer. Like other movies, <laughs> other movies would what do, you do think that. This movie is the Dark Knight. That's right. <laughs> but interestingly, in John Wick, by contrast, every single person says John Wick's name and old mate from Deadwood, Ian McShane, says 
Jonathan, which is that kind of slightly paternal slash patronizing slash parental, yeah, usage. But the number of times someone will say, John, who's the uh, villain played by that Swedish actor from The Girl the Dragon Tattoo? What's his name again? Michael. Michael Nyquist? Yeah. Every line he has in the third act is him saying, la la, John, la la, John. And basically, whatever he says, John Wick repeats, sans his name. And that's kind of the extent of the dialogue exchange. Right. Are you ready, John? I'm ready. It's just as well they didn't call the movie Baba Yaga because he's also referred to as Baba Yaga a bunch of times, John Wick. Is that the Russian word for boogeyman? Well, that's what they say. They go like, oh, he's John Wick, you know, he's like mythic. He's like Baba Yaga, the Russian word for boogeyman. But like in my mind, I always think of Baba Yaga as some like old crone. Like just some angry old lady, and and like googling it, she's a, like a deformed and or ferocious looking woman from Russian fairy tales. So it seems kind of weird that these Russians is Nyquist playing a Russian? He is Tarasov, that's his name. Yeah, keep referring to John Wick as Baba Yaga. You'd think they'd know that their own word for John Wick is like a lady with a cauldron. That doesn't yeah, make that's- sense. That's it's bizarre. like the, no one actually googled this and thought, should we be referring to this guy as Baba Yaga? Baby Yaga is like the lady who had the house with chicken legs. It's like, what? John Wick lives in a house with chicken legs and like boils children in a cauldron? This is their metaphor for him? So why are they choosing that metaphor and the boogeyman as well? Like, why have both? Exactly. And this constantly bugs me about the movies. And I'd love to know why they did this. I mean, I don't know. It just seems like such a weird choice. Like, of all of the sort of creatures of folklore or, you know, even generic ones, it could be the ghost or the dragon or the – but they went with – Something that seems very specifically old lady witch. Yeah, it is weird. It is weird. It's funny, actually, when the characters speak in Russian, by the way, and we have those colourful, stylized subtitles, you know, where they'll have, like, certain words in capitals and bigger on screen. Right. Sort of a, a Tony Scott or Ridley Scott-esque affectation, yeah. but without the rest of the stylization around Yeah, them. totally. Like, Tony Scott was a huge fan of that. And I think your mate before you mentioned, uh, Guy Ritchie, is someone likely to do the same kind of thing? Like it's really making a point of the subtitles. I think Tony Scott did it in the other Denzel film, Man on Fire, quite a lot. Oh, yeah, it's full of floating subtitles. Yeah, yeah. They really fit the style of that movie, that sort of the hyperkinetic, like different frame rates and film stocks or whatever. And it feels like it less fits within this and it's just a means to go like, hey, guys, you got to read something here. We'll make it a bit more interesting yeah. for you. Uh, look, at least- I know you hate reading. What are you doing? I didn't watch a John Wick movie to read. What the fuck? More shooting coming up soon. God damn it. At least though, the colour palette of those subtitles matches the colour palette of the kind of neon lights and stuff. That's a very stylized aesthetic choice that the directors made, which again separates me from being a film grounded like The Equalizer to this hyper real world. Like The Equalizer is a palette of kind of browns and yellows, just a very natural color grade that you kind of don't see as much these days anymore. And when they do use you know, key lighting in the nighttime scene, the third act, it's more for tension. It's not to actually try and create great contrast. That's because The Equalizer is a movie for dads. <laughs> That's why they go on old school palettes and old school. It's a total dad movie. Totally. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But he's 100% like a dad movie. You know, right down to like, you know, he has to save like a young woman, which is like a stand-in for for any man's daughter, you know. You're totally right. Like in some ways, it's a fantasy for middle-aged to older men, mainly fathers, where 
if given the choice, they would idolize to be like Denzel. Whereas John Wick, if probably aspires to a younger audience, because it's got a cool look, it's got cool fighting, it's got cool guns, it's got cool suits. Totally, totally. like hundred percent. You know what? John Wick, basically on the scale, is halfway between the Equalizer and the Matrix. <laughs> yeah, okay. Like think about it, right? The fighting is not as stylized as the Matrix, but more stylized than Equalizer. The color palette is closer to being the cliches of neon Tokyo. So kind of like how Matrix is quite a stylized uh, color grade, same sort of thing. The idea of those suits and the, the dress and stuff, think about the costumes in the Matrix. Again, more kind of formal, stylized, very clear choices, whereas everyone's just wearing their casual wear equalizer. If there was a scale of only three films in the entire world, that's how I think it would work. <laughs> right, okay. And there is. That is the only scale. Yeah. So let's get to a little bit of a combined review. We've kind of compared both films. So I thought we'd just note a few um, either coincidences or ripoffs. And I guess we have to say probably not ripoffs given that these films came out within two months of each other. But I guess you'd say they both have organized assassins. They both have Russian gangsters, which I've got to say for both films feels a bit cliched. There's a thing, I guess, these days. You can't really have your, you don't really want your villains to be Middle Eastern. No one's really done that since True Lies or whatever. That seems kind of, it's not really done anymore. Russians and Serbs are your go-to bad guys because they're just scumbag white people. Yeah, totally. Or white South Africans, you know, that'd be a good set of villains too. Who's the, um, what's that film by David Cronenberg, which has that kind of- Oh, Eastern Promises. Eastern Promises. So, and the other one, which has um, uh, History of Violence. So, both films have- Yeah, History of Violence is like Ed Harris and um, they're sort of like Jewish gangsters? I think so, yeah, yeah. Because they're not Italian-American yeah. anyway. And Eastern Promises, I think they're Russian gangsters, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. They're too- Yeah, but look, you want your gross villains to be white guys. Yeah. It's just easier. <laughs> That's right. It's just easier. You basically want to- yeah. And also too, there are so few countries where Hollywood has to be concerned about selling to them- for example, in 2014 and definitely in 2019, you couldn't make your villains Chinese because the Chinese market is so big, that's just not going to happen from a commercial point of view, right? But I guess- Yeah, that's right. And even a movie that you think does that, like Triple X 3, then sort of, spoilers, flips it and goes, oh, hey, Donnie Yen, who is super awesome. He actually, he and Tony Jaa aren't the villains. The villains is the white lady. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of villains- did you notice that same thug actor, Tate Fletcher, who appeared in both films as a thug? No, is he one of those like go-to kind of like heavy looking? Who does he play in both of them? You nailed it. He's a heavy set guy with a bald head, shaved head, and this moustache with like gel that comes right out and kind of like comes out to the width of his face. It's got like whatever you call moustache cream. It's a really heightened long moustache. That sticks out past his cheeks. So, you know, a very really clearly identifiable character playing an assassin against the protagonist in both films. <laughs> I did not notice this. Let's talk uh, missed opportunities. What could the filmmakers have done? Actually, you know what? Let's come back to our pitch for the third film, which could be an amalgamation of both films and discuss that. Now, ordinarily, we'd, we'd ask here which film has aged better, but I don't know. It's been only five years. Both? Yeah, both have aged fine. I mean, I guess The Equalizer 2 is not nearly, I guess, more like what franchise has aged better because they both had a number of sequels. And I think The Equalizer 2 is certainly not as good as Equalizer 1, whereas the John Wick movies are pretty consistent. So, I kind of agree. They're both quite new modern movies and it's a bit moot. I think the John Wick movies have aged better. 
Yeah, I think that John Wick 2 and 3 have actually just totally deepened their roots into the mythology and age better in the sense that they obviously have a cult following. They've done better at the box office each time. So I just think from that point of view, the story has deepened, which rarely happens in sequels, and the box office has expanded. So that's enough, I think, to say that the franchise of that particular film has aged better than The Equalizer. Also, I think The Equalizer 2, I think he shoots a lot more people. And that was kind of disappointing to me. Yeah, you're right. It- There's a lot more gunplay and stuff. And it's like, ah, oh, it feels like they've left behind some of the really interesting ideas of the, or the stuff that really separated it from other action movies. Yeah. I mean, the Equalizer poster, the main poster I used had him holding a nail gun. So it was sort of saying from the start, this isn't your average assassin. Like, it really was a guy who made the most of what he had around him in that kind of Home Alone style way. And to have him sort of, Going back to a gun like his traditional military roots isn't sort of the character we met before. It's really interesting because the Equalizer 2 poster is him holding like a big machine gun. There you go. Says it all. All right, let's jump to the uh, box office champs. So have a guess. The Equalizer versus John Wick. Which one do you think won out at the US domestic and international box office? It's obviously the Equalizer, right? It would have smashed it, wouldn't it? Okay, so the Equalizer on a production budget of $55 million, which seems pretty reasonable. Given it's very reasonable. Star, yeah. Did $101.5 million in the US and 192 globally. So what I'd expect, right? I mean, Dendal's always been a big deal in the States, but because of the complications of different cultures around the world, unfortunately, black actors and actresses don't travel as well as lead characters internationally. Even Will Smith has struggled at times. So it does surprise me that it'd do that number in the US, but not as highly internationally. And also hit that magic 101,000, sorry, 101 million too, which is, you know, I guess deemed to be the benchmark for success, right? Sure. John Wick, production budget of $20 million. Holy shit. All the Very money. Reasonable. Yeah, all the money's on screen. That's fantastic. That's with uh, Keanu Reeves, by the way, too. So someone who probably is on a similar paycheck to Denzel, that's fantastic. That's like. I don't know anything about in this, but I reckon before John Wick, Keanu, Denzel's been pretty consistently a sort of safer bet as a leading man, whereas prior to John Wick, Keanu was definitely sort of felt like he'd hit a bit of a rougher patch. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. 47 Ronin or whatever, sort of yep. that big yep. samurai movie that sort of no one really commercially or critically, whereas Denzel, you know, so. I think you're right. You're going to be absolutely devastated by the uh, box office of this one. So, does it for $20 million, okay, only $43 million domestic gross in the US and only another 45 internationally for a total of 88 and 700000 So, 88, $89 million. It must be one of those movies that did really well in terms of, what are they called, ancillaries? Yeah, totally. Ancillary markets, the where these sort market. of box office numbers aren't yep. indicative really of the financial success of the movie. That's right. And that film probably back in 2014, which is only five years ago from today, but is like dog years in the way that Hollywood's been moving, that was still a time in that window where Netflix would have had more rights to more properties like this and would have had a huge life on a streaming service like Netflix or Amazon Prime or even on Hulu maybe or and definitely on cable TV. So it's probably been one of those classic reruns on HBO, for example. Yeah, totally. It would be on all the time, right? Yeah, totally. All right, so Rotten Tomatoes, which movie impressed the critics? What do you think? I reckon John Wick probably impressed the critics more. Okay. 
So the Equalizer has 60% on Rotten Tomatoes from the critics and 76%. So that's 60% and 76% from the audience. And John Wick was 86% from the critics, smashing Mr. Robert McCall in The Equalizer and also higher with the fans, 80% versus The Equalizer 76 So It's interesting how popular John Wick is with critics. I presume they're responding to the sort of how well made the the films are and stuff. But for a movie that's ostensibly revenge films where he just kills swathes of people, film critics typically seem to have politics that skew left and so on. And I guess it's just interesting that it's a series of movies that they overwhelmingly kind of love. I don't really know if there's there's anything to that. Whereas, you know, like something like, um, and obviously the politics of, say, the Death Wish remake are maybe a bit not as, or there is actual politics in them, you know, like white guy killing some black people and so on like that. I guess it's just interesting that for a movie with a body count that hives, it sort of has such a, like, a fascination with guns and violence. Because, like, it's just people being shot in the head constantly. The, the critics are such huge fans of it. Well, the funny thing is the international critics, particularly the ones from, say, countries like Australia, New Zealand, the UK and Canada, weren't as enamoured by the violence as the American critics. And they kind of thought it just tapped into many international perceptions about American gun violence and fetishising. Fetishizing? Yeah, it's hugely fetish. Feti- feti- oh, fuck. What have you done, mate? Fetishizes. You know, there's that sequence, I think actually in the second one, where he goes to the sort of like the hotel's gun shop and he's like, oh. Oh, there's something here? Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, it's like real gun porn. Oh, totally, totally. And, you know, like we're in Australia, we don't have, we don't have guns and it's like fucking great, like guns are shit. I mean, like personally, I'm very anti-gun but very pro-gun movies. So, I don't know, maybe I fall into the same category as these guys. Maybe I've got to think about that myself, why I like, why I really like John Wick and The Equalizer, but a sort of politics that you would expect to disagree with the film. You know, as a segue, when I've um, curated my movies and stuff, you can choose posters to curate your movies and stuff. And interestingly enough, it's really hard to find posters for many films that don't contain guns. And you become really aware of it when you're actually like curating your movies and you're looking at them and thinking, oh, God, because I'm aware that my kids will see the movie after movie after movie on screen. Totally. And, and John Wick poster is literally him pointing a gun at you. Yeah, exactly. And that like is he's like- pointing a gun right at you, the, that's right. the person yeah. looking at yeah. the poster. By the way, it is actually the best poster of the trilogy, I think. The first one. Yeah, yeah. I think the idea of having the gun barrel as the O works really well. I mean, if you don't kind of make a point- calling the film after the protagonist who isn't famous based on an existing property and you're trying to make him a legend. And that's the point, I think. When you put a character's name in the name of the movie, you're trying to characterise him as a legend from the get-go. And by having him aiming the camera at the audience or the viewer of the poster with the barrel as the O, it's just doubling down on this guy's a force of nature. Okay, so interestingly, though, with that Rotten Tomatoes score, by the way, this will really surprise you. I would have thought over five years the audience score would have been made up of definitely more user ratings than the Equalizer, but weirdly not. 91,000 people led to a 76% audience score for the Equalizer, but with John Wick, it's actually 10,000 less, 81, which really surprises me. Because on IMDb, John Wick has almost 50% more people having rated it. Right. That's interesting because- Overwhelmingly more people are sort of engaged to go click, oh, yeah, 10 out of 10 yeah, or okay. whatever. So, obviously, what's happened is in time, as people have actually watched this film as a cult classic over the last five years on streaming services or on buying as a rental or on iTunes, 
they've probably just naturally gone to IMDb as the first port of call opposed to uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Maybe Rotten Tomatoes is that thing where people actually use more when the film comes out. As time goes by, they rate it down the track through IMDb. That makes sense, I think. I don't know anyone who uses Rotten Tomatoes to rate movies. No, not at all. Like weirdos trying to review bomb something. Oh, we're going to go on down. Otherwise, like who does that? Like super nerds go use Letterbox or whatever. Sort of nerds use IMDb. Who goes and rates stuff on Rotten Tomatoes? I know. Too much time. All right. Let's jump to the awards, shall we? So the best dialogue award. What's your favorite quote? In which one? Let's start with Equalizer. Okay. I'll start with- uh, You go first. All right. So I love Melissa Leo, huge fan of hers, and she's great at playing a kind of disenfranchised espionage, intelligence agency bureaucrat. There's a great line where she says, sometimes we make the wrong choices to get to the right place. And I just love that as a theme for a film, which is great. The other one I love is by Denzel, Robert McCall, when you pray for rain. Oh, dang it, that's you mine. You can deal with the too. <laughs> yeah, I love that scene between great him and line. the chokers. Yeah, when, what is it? When you pray for rain, you've got to deal with the mud. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. sick. Awesome line. That, um, that whole just, showdown scene between him and Martin Sokas, I love scenes in movies where like there's a hero and the villain sit down and give each other like steely looks. So good. And the equalizer does it well. You know? Yeah, it does really well, really well. As for best dialogue in John Wick, I don't think there actually is much. To me, I actually really noticed rewatching the film, there weren't any kind of iconic dialogue moments at all. There's one where Vigo says, I heard you struck my son. Aurelio says, yes, I did. And he says, and may I ask why? Yeah, well, because he stole John Wick's car, sir, and uh, killed his dog. Vigo just pauses and goes, oh. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a I, nice I really moment, remember. but it's not actually like great dialogue. So I'm giving that to the equalizer. I saw him kill three men with a pencil. Yeah. yeah. Again, it's kind of like it's about the character and moments, but not actually great dialogue by itself. So, yep, for me, the equalizer gets it. You? Yep, 100%. Done. Equalizer does it. The winner winner chicken dinner award, who came out on top in each of these movies? As in, like, who was the best lead actor, supporting actor? Who kind of nailed it and was their career high? So, first, the equalizer. I had Chad. Oh, sorry, I had Denzel down. The Equalizer is a Denzel career high for you? No, no. just in, in, the, you know, in this film. In this film. Oh, yeah. Denzel, but Denzel nails everything. I don't even think there's a single, there is no movie where Denzel is bad in. Yeah, okay. Actually, well, maybe, I mean. Is it? Yeah. Two no, guns. No, he's great. He's, he's always good. I mean, you're right. It wasn't his career high. So I suppose he won the movie. Was it a career high for anyone else in the movie besides, they might not have been as good as Denzel, but was, it a, was there a career high? Martin Chockers? No. I'd say, I'd say the opposite of that. <laughs> no. I mean, Denzel's got to be one of the most consistent American leading men, right? Yeah, more than Will like Smith. For like almost Will two Smith. decades. Will yes. Smith was loved, but I think Denzel was famous before Will Smith and is more reliable and maybe not beloved but trusted, I think, than Will Smith. But Denzel's also done movies that will, like, things like Malcolm X, Flight. Fences, like serious films. Yeah, like stuff yeah. that stuff that feels Wait, Roman J, weighty. Israel, and then, you know, like dad action movies. And it feels like he's got not only an incredible range, but just as a, as a consistently popular, it's pretty, maybe him and Tom Cruise are the two with the sort of longevity of careers in that space. Yeah, like Denzel hasn't taken to slumming it, so to speak, in a superhero film. 
And you get the impression he's not interested in doing that. Yeah, or cranking out 10 DTV movies a year like Bruce Willis. Or, yeah, totally. You know. Or um, John Cusack or yeah. Nicolas Cage. <laughs> yeah. How about John Wick? Who won the film in John Wick? It's got to Ke- be the Keanu. directors, right? Yeah, okay. The directors. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think they, Keanu they certainly was made right. them, right? But to me, that like that made them. They stole the show. Everyone loved the film. And I would say actually specifically it was Chad because he went on to then do two and three. And I know the other guy went on to do Deadpool, which is a huge break. But I think like Chad owns the franchise now. And the other guy, here's what did um, Atomic Blonde, right? Atomic Blonde and Deadpool. Yeah, right. I wonder why they didn't make the next one. I wonder if they had a falling out or it was just an amicable parting of ways. Or maybe they could only get their first break together, you know, in terms of yeah, like- Yeah, but- at, at any rate, yeah, I think you're right. The two of them certainly came out of it. So, uh, John Wick versus Equalizer, I'd give it to John Wick because I think yeah, yeah, it was a big opportunity. All right, done. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the Tommy Lee Jones Steel Award, named after the iconic performance by Tommy Lee Jones in a supporting role in The Fugitive, where he blew Harrison Ford off the screen and was rewarded with an Oscar. So, who stole the show against all odds in these twin movies- because although their role was small and underwritten, they rose above it. Who do you think? I don't know. Did oh, I mean, no one rises above Denzel in Decolizer. So we can push that one off the table, right? Yeah, push it off the table. I mean- it's, it's not even an option. I've got to say, in a tiny role, Melissa Leo is just convincing. Like, she just- Oh, she's great. She comes on screen for a tiny window of time and I think sort of like does a lot with little. Like, she doesn't really do much at all, but she just carries weight and I mm. think- does more with that character. So I'd say- Bill Pullman does even less. <laughs> does like, what's he even doing in the I movie? I know. He has poor Bill Pullman. It's like his role is to like answer a door. I know. Like, I know. I think he goes- It's like, it's the president. It's the president from Independence. Oh, he's not in the movie anymore. Why is he I think there's, there's a part where he goes, what did he want? And she says, he wanted permission. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then with John Wick, I don't know, did anyone steal a role from- a small I don't think anyone stole it from. Or Rose steal Bartlett it from made, Canoe. Made like, the most of it. I mean, Willem Dafoe does a little bit of scenery chewing in there. John yeah, Leguizamo turns up for some for a little single scene of scenery chewing. I thought uh, John Leguizamo did not a bad job with a small role. Like I thought, he's playing a mechanic. He doesn't have to do much, but was quite good. Yeah, he's a good bit of uh, attitude. Yeah, we should have a new award called the uh, Chewing Scenery Award. In fact, yeah. do you want to start the Chewing Scenery Award now? name it up like now? Gary Oldman or- Yeah. What do we call it? Daniel Day-Lewis. Should we just do that now? Should we call it the Chewing Scenery Award? The can of ham? Well, first of all, we need to actually hand out the Tommy Lee Jones Stiller Award. So, okay. who do we think stole the show with what they- with? Do we just say there was a draw because no one really- It's a draw. Okay. It's a draw, but maybe Lance Reddick. Okay. Who's that? He's a hotel manager. Oh, he's great. He's fantastic. Yeah. Although I'm saving him for the- um, Oh, Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm saying for later. Okay. So, the Chewing the Scenery Award, the Equalizer, it's got to be Martin. Oh, yeah. Kozak's yeah. right. I mean, he just- He's having a great time. He's having a great time. And then John Wick, would it be probably William Defoe, or would it be Martin Nykvist? Yeah. I mean, William Defoe maybe, but I think Ian McShane, even though he's sort of- He's not playing big. He's certainly laying it on thick. But is he chewing scenery? No, no, he's not chewing scenery. I just think he's really good. In fact, I actually would go back and say he did a lot with a little for the previous award. Oh, yeah, fair. Okay. I'd actually say he would beat Melissa Leo in that he has a small role as a mentor figure, but has more gravitas than Leo does. So, yep, I'm going to retrospectively give him that award. But in terms of chewing the scenery, how about Alfie Allen, the guy from Game of Thrones? I mean, he's really hamming it up. I don't know. I'm sorry if you're listening, Alfie. He's a little forgettable in it. 
I can't really. Maybe it's because he's playing such like a worm. He's like I think that's it. Yeah, I think you're right. That you're like, oh, this guy's what a schmuck. Yeah, yeah, he's very unlikable. Okay. Which I guess they have to do because you really want to root for. And also it makes you a little bit sympathetic to Michael Nyker's character. Like he's got this dud son. Oh, <laughs> like, totally, totally. Shitbird. Totally. Idiot son. So I reckon um, Marty gets it from New Zealand for the equaliser. I think he's chewing more right, scenery yeah, than anyone else. He's doing Because he's got all the tattoos as well. Oh, uh, it's too much. It's big. It's yeah. great. It's awesome. Yeah. Now, we've come to the Edward Furlong Award. Now, you had thoughts about changing the name of this, didn't you, to something else? This is the award, did this film ruin the career of anyone or did someone not make the most of their opportunity after this film? What was your alternative name? There was like some an alternate actor who wasted their talent and career. Exactly. Well, look, to be honest, I don't. I don't have it. We'll just stick with the Edward Furlong Award. Although, we're going to do it in protest. Okay. So, so I it- did nothing, but I'm still going to complain. <laughs> Excellent. Just like those people that don't vote. Okay. So the equaliser. Anyone in mind? Did anyone sort of like not make the most of their opportunity? In the equaliser. I can't think of anyone. Um, I mean, I think Marty's done work still. Chloe's kicked on. Bill Pullman didn't take the opportunity to try and yeah, but come back. We're not talking about Independence Day. No, we're talking about like, did anyone actually? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't know. Like, no one like, jumped. Yeah, you up. could arguably say that it works. You know, you know who I thought actually was really good on screen, and I haven't really seen again. Is that kind of chunky guy who plays a security guard who had a lot of personality? Oh yeah, they could have edited that plot out of the. Yeah, but I haven't seen him on screen. Like he could have actually appeared somewhere else. I haven't seen him appear anywhere else. There's always a role for a lovable Ralphie. Know. Ralphie. Oh look, it's Ralphie. Yeah, exactly. All right, so let's go to. Keanu and Co. Did anyone not make the most of their opportunity? I'll give you an example of someone who had a really tiny role, which was weird, was Bridget Monaghan as the flashback oh, wife. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's going on there? I don't know. She probably got paid a bunch of money to do three hours work. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you know who I think should have tried to take advantage and try and jump further into the Hollywood stratosphere is Adrienne Palicki. Palicki? Palicki, yeah. She's the blonde woman from oh. Friday Night Lights, the teacher. Right, she's the sort of villainous hit woman. Yeah, I mean, look at how Ruby Rose's career has gone. She's played all sorts of assassins, and now she's got her own TV show playing Batwoman. She appeared in John Wick 2. Like, she, I don't think, isn't a remarkably better actor than Adrian, but I haven't seen Palicki pull up in anything, have you? I guess Ruby Rose had a cooler character because she was mute and did everything with sign language, which is immediately kind of more badass for an assassin or reflects Adrian not being a great actor. Maybe, but then she really worked with her limitations. Yeah. Because yeah. Adrian, Palecki's character yeah. is just kind of like a brat. And she kills Clark Peters, which is pretty unforgivable. That's true. So I guess who should we hand it to? Um Palicki or um Pullman. Pullman can have it. Pullman is. All right. But, jumping- because he's just so thankless. <laughs> like, I know. What's he doing? I know. Who knows? He's paying the end of his mortgage. Let's jump to the Bill Fleck Big League Award, named after American actors Billy Bob Thornton and Ben Affleck, who seized the opportunity to jump from indie films Sling Blade and Goodwill Hunting to launch a Hollywood career with Armageddon. So, of The Equalizer and John Wick, who jumped into the big league with these films? I'm going to go with David Harbour. Totally. It feels like there was a point in time, maybe in 2014, where David Harbour was just in everything. Just popped up everywhere. Always is like some sort of weird scumbag or corrupt cop or serial killer like in Walk Amongst the Tombstones, but he's just ubiquitous. Small roles too. And yeah. This was a bigger yeah. role. 
And then um, this got, but I think this basically shortly afterwards he was in Stranger Things. Yeah, exactly. So, and he probably got a hair transplant. I think you're right. <laughs> All right. How about John Wick? Did anyone there take advantage of the opportunity? I can't really. No, no, think I, I like seeing Dean Winters pop up in things. Oh, yes, he's great. Yeah. I actually would say he didn't take advantage of it. <laughs> no, probably. He's in so much stuff anyway. He's probably consistently working all of the time. Yeah, you know? yeah, probably right. Look, I, I say we give it to uh, David Harbour. Done. Yeah. All right. Jumping to the next award, the Stephen Toblowski Award, a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy Award, named after the iconic supporting actor Stephen Tobolowsky, who's appeared in over 260 films and TV shows, and many know him as the insurance salesman Ned Ryerson. From Groundhog Day to Gabe, which actor triggered, hey, it's that guy, when he or she appeared on screen? Isn't all of John Wick basically that? <laughs> it like, is. so is. Yeah. Oh, Alfie Allen, that's the guy who got his dick cut off in Game of Thrones. Totally. Oh, Willem Dafoe, he's a weirdo. Dean Winters. Been in lots of movies. Um, Adrian Dean Winters. Adrian John Luguizamo. Lance, uh, Lance Reddick. Who was in The Wire? Thomas Sadowski. He turns up as a cop in one scene. You're Ian, like, Mc- oh, like Ian McShane. John Luguizamo. Uh, Kevin Nash. Bridget Monaghan. Peters. Yep. But I'm going to give it to David Patrick Kelly. Who's he? David Patrick Kelly. He plays The Undertaker, who turns up. With the hat. Yeah, the guy with the hat. But he was in, like, all of Walter Hill's movies. And he's in Warriors. He's the guy who bangs the bottles together and goes, like, Warriors, come out to uh, play. Oh, yeah, yeah, Okay. If you like kind of genre movies in, uh, in, like, the 1980s and 90s and stuff, David Patrick Kelly. Okay. He's a bad guy in, um, what's that uh, Nick Nolte, Eddie Murphy movie? 48 Hours. Yeah, 48 hours. He's a bad guy in that. Okay. Love him. Up against an equaliser, I don't know, Bill Pullman? <laughs> Bill Pullman's scooping the awards. He's scooping them. I think your mate from John Wick has it nailed. Yeah. It's like a, an award for the whole cast. Yeah, nice. All right, the Memphis Reigns Award, named after the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Who steals the week We'll call it the Cole Trickle Award, named after the absurdly played character by Tom Cruise in Days of Thunder. Cole Trickle. That's right, Cole Trickle, of course. Okay, who nails it from the equaliser? Who do we have? Well, equaliser because, like you said, it's all quite- Grounded. Grounded. No one has silly names. No. Really missed an opera, missed a trick. The name's like Jenny and Susan and Brian. Yeah. Teddy and- I mean, David Harbour's called Masters, but that's obviously his surname. Yeah. I do think Teddy is deliberately a choice by the screenwriters to give an intimidating Russian mafia murderer- a cutesy woodsy name. So I guess you'd say Teddy's kind of ridiculous given the character. I guess, but and I think it's totally forgivable that they don't have stupid names in the equalizer. Yeah, I agree. You know, movies deserve stupid names, but it makes sense for that. Okay. It is totally John missed Wick. opportunity in John Wick not to have dumber character names. Well, I can't think of any. I mean, basically the Russian names are the Russian names. Yeah, Vigo I guess or Aurelio is a bit heightened for John Legizimo's character. Guizamo. Yeah. I mean Winston does sound like a very kind of aristocratic, wanky British name for Ian McShane's character. It's a movie universe where everyone should have names like Jericho Kane. You know what I mean? Like Jericho everyone- Kane should be the name of John Wick. That's my well, issue with John Wick. His name is already boring. the name of Arnold Schwarzenegger in End of Days. I was just thinking of awesome character names. Gotcha. Okay. But, but it's certainly a movie, don't you think, where it's like everyone should have a sweet, cool name. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a draw. They're both losers. They're both losers. No, yeah. actually- the Equalizer doesn't need to play in this one. John Wick loses. All right. So the Die Hard in the Building Award, named after the influence of Die Hard and inspiring a subgenre of an everyday hero who's up against a group of baddies in a single location. So if imitation is the ultimate form of flattery, 
did either of these movies leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones? I don't think so. I mean, they're basically revenge films without much of a spin, except for the fact that John Wick has this sort of heightened underworld. But I haven't seen any clones pop up since then. Have you? No, I mean, if anything, The Equalizer, for instance, is just part of a long, proud tradition of dad revenge movies. Yeah. I think basically the only imitation or clone of John Wick are the sequels, which have doubled down in their mythology. Yeah, that's right. I mean, at least what's interesting, I suppose, is that John Wick is popular and so on, but it doesn't feel like it inspired a whole bunch of similarly well-put-together American action movies. You know, it's not like off the back of John Wick, like, oh, shit, we could do a whole bunch of these, like, really fucking well-executed action films. Yeah, you're right. I don't think there doesn't seem to be this great legacy that's been created by that. No. I wonder if no, we'll if anything, see a John spin-off. Wick is, like, following after those sort of, like, Indo action movies. Yeah, totally, something. like The Raid. Yeah. And yeah. the other one, I've, I was trying to remember its name earlier, The Night Comes For Us. That's fucking sick. Is that an Indonesian action film? Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Great. Really awesomely choreographed. I mean, incredibly violent, like super violent. Well, I've just really discovered well. the uh, IMDb shortlist you can do on your phone, which I hadn't discovered before, which is a great way of just, you know, when you'd, you'd find a film on IMDb and think, I've got to see that. And I'd often write it on a separate note on my iPhone to see later on. But now I've just created oh, basically can- a watch list on IMDb. So you just basically tap it, add it to your watch list. And then what happens is if when it comes out, or when it's playing on TV, you can email through alerting you that it's playing tonight on TV or it's coming out at the cinema tomorrow or something like that. It's great, really handy. So the IMDb list, so basically sign to your IMDb app. Yeah, it's awesome. All right, two more awards. The Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, which does sound like a terrible porno move. Named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and relocate it to a sluggish cruise ship. So, could you make a sequel of any of these films? We think that we know the answer is there. So, I guess that was kind of moot. I guess the question is, could you do a spin-off of either of these films with, like, one character? What I really liked about the sequel to The Equalizer was, like, the first 40 minutes, which was just Denzel doing almost, like, mini- I would like to see a sh- an Equalizer which doesn't actually have a main plot. There's just, like- it's just like one of those mid-90s indie movies, you know, that were just like a collection of stories, but it was just all a collection of stories about Denzel just doing equalising, but with no oh, like, like central Like background. VHS, like basically a series of vignettes of him equalising. Yeah, exactly. So a TV show, right? <laughs> well, no, but like they're just 10 minutes long and there's nine of them in a feature f- film. <laughs> like, right, okay. That sounds like the worst idea. I couldn't – isn't that basically just a series of action scenes of him assassinating people? No, but each could have its own mini plot. It would be like uh, it would yeah, be like Richard Linklater's slacker meets the equaliser. So, yeah, basically like all these directors like Baz Luhrmann does no, no, it doesn't musical have to be, version. I mean, that's the way you could do it, like New York, I love you. <laughs> Assassins, I love you. I love it. When I was watching the sequel, I was like, oh, all those other little stories I found much more interesting than – the main plot. All right, let's jump to the Memento Award, named for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatched the movie. Gabe, did anything jump out of when you saw The Equalizer? Yeah, I always forget that there's that whole subplot where Denzel Washington teaches Petey or whatever that character's name is, like Stevie, I forgot what his name is, to like pass the security guard exam. I think this is a bizarre little subplot. Yeah, but it does pay off at the end in terms of that guy – I thought it was Ralphie. Isn't it Ralphie? Ralphie. 
Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that in relation to Ralphie, though, being a hostage later on? There has to be someone he has to care about? Yeah, I guess. But, like, I don't know. It just always struck me as kind of funny and weird. But anyway, so just that. For me, it's the fact that Chloe, is it Chloe Moretz, just disappears from the movie. Like but until doesn't the she get beaten up? And then I guess the story oh, doesn't her. need her anymore in a way. So so it would have made sense, wouldn't it, that she was brought at the end, right? Instead of Ralphie. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Particular so. chick. That'd make like, more Ted, sense. Teddy realises that she is important to Robert. So and tracks her down, you know, because she wasn't careful about where she was hidden by yeah, him. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. How That's about John Wick? No, I feel like I've seen this movie so many times now that it's all uh, fairly well imprinted on my brain. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I guess the equaliser wins if you even call this a win. Because it doesn't utilise Chloe Moretz well enough. Yeah. <laughs> sure. yeah. Sure. Sure. That's a technical uh, TKO. That brings us to the end of our awards that have run as long as any regular year at the Oscars. Before we go, I've got some uh, behind-the-scenes trivia for you. Oh, okay. Hit me. Have a guess who was going to play Denzel Washington's character, Robert McCall, in the first incarnation of The Equalizer. Is it someone famous? Is it a, a boss Russell Crowe. What? Directed by Paul Haggis. Interesting, uh, huh? Well, they did that movie together called um, The Last Three Days or something. Which was fantastic. I really liked that film. Oh, it was terrible. You didn't like that film? Oh, <laughs> that's another podcast. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. And that's pretty much it. No one else surprising there. Um, that was the limit of it. And John Wick, I think we've already alluded to the background there in terms of the relationship between Chad and Dave, who were the directors and how they met the Matrix. But there was nothing else that was sort of unusual or surprising in that film other than just trying to get Keanu on board to try and convince them. Well, Derek Kolstad wrote a whole bunch of Dolph Lundgren movies previous to- Oh, did he? So, basically, his story he's was elevated, so to speak, in that he's hasn't had- some, totally. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And this is what we'd call elevated genre, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Don't God. use that phrase. But yes. <laughs> yes, we would. Ordinarily, before we put a bow in this bad boy, we'd- Try and pitch a dream third movie, maybe amalgamating the best elements of both of these movies and an extra element. But I think these movies are both great, so I think we should just pass this award. Okay. Who would win in a fight? John Wick? Oh! Or, 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 or Robert shots fired. Literally, shots fired. Oh, it has to be John Wick, right? I mean, he- He'd just shoot him. <laughs> he, he basically assassinates a billion people in one and a half hours, and it seems that Denzel's very reluctant to have a gun. And I think yeah. also John's probably a better physical fighter as well. But maybe John Wick would be killed before he can even get close to Robert McCall because ah, his two chest would have laid a, a number of traps. Yes, interesting. That would have tricked him and a, like a some sort of metal bar with nails in it would have nailed John Wick. What if they actually seriously to blend worlds and rather than expand the universe, they blend universes, right? So do you remember when they introduced What's his face? Who's the bald guy in um, Fast and Furious? The British guy? Statham. Statham. I just blanked entirely. The talk when they introduced Statham, like what if Statham entered the Fast and Furious films playing his character from the transporter? Right. Uh-huh. Well, you know, there's uh-huh. a rumour that Keanu turns up at the end of the Hobbs and Shaw one. Playing this character or someone else? I don't think so, but I bet he's playing like the Fast and Furious world version of that where you're just like, oh shit, it's John Wick. Oh, wow. No. We're really in the we're really in the Keanu Renaissance, right? The Keanu sense. Because he basically, as I said earlier, had just dipped after the Matrix films. He did Thumbsucker and a few other indie films. 
But to have this John Wick trilogy now, plus the Matrix films, plus the legacy before that of Point Break and Speed, like the amazing sort of 30-year run of action films, and then he's peering in Toy Story 4 as a major character, and that room is right. Yeah. So, he's kicking goals. Anyway, speaking of kicking goals, mate, that brings us to the end of the show. Nice. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? I presume, I guess, on Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick. Awesome. I'm Ben Phelps on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.com slash Ben Phelps. You can find all of my podcasts, including Twin Movies and What Happens Next, curated within one mega podcast called The Ben Phelps Show and The Usual Places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening, folks. Hope you enjoyed the show. Take care. Stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you later, Gabe. Thank you. Bye-bye, Ben. Bye-bye. 